Indiana Jones is full of Nazis and Frank and the Nazis. And Brian Jones is notorious for having taken a photo shoot dressed as a Nazi. Take the red pill, Josh. Take the red pill. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet senior writer, Liel Leibowitz. Who wishes you a happy 11th day of the Omer. Oh, yeah. And deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Good day, whatever day it is. <laughs> this week, two Jews of the week. Uh, we spoke with Ophira Eisenberg, stand-up comic and host of NPR's trivia show, Ask Me Another. She was the Jew of the week on what? Our, was it our third show ever or something? She's seen us through it all. She's seen us through it all. She's like our, our fairy godmother or, or something. And then a second Jew of the week, a, a special guest, a surprise guest, and it's it's going to blow your minds. Uh, so I'm not going to say who it is, but stick around because it is, would you guys agree it's a mind-blowing Jew of the week? It's, it's a big get for us. It's a huge get. Um, just to bring you up to date on the Jewish calendar, uh, a bunch of things. It's the 11th day of the Omer, the 50-day period from Passover to Shavuos when we receive the, the tablets at Sinai. It's also uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, Yom HaShoah, this, coming up this week. And uh, from, from the Pittsburgh world, um, I'm reminded that April 27th is the anniversary of the Poway shooting because it was the six-month anniversary of the Tree of Life shooting. So it's, it's, there's a lot. It's, it's a heavy, so much good cheer this week. (laughs) It's so much good cheer this week. So with that out of the way, I I do want us to all just remember that and to, and to, to, to keep You might say never forget those things. (laughs) Are they going to be like Holocaust Day Zoom memorials? But you know, the, the really interesting thing is that people could go to these things who wouldn't normally, right? Like you are able to be transported to any any location because of this video conferencing. Like I'm big on this. Like I think it's really amazing. Not to be glib, but you can do a gallery view of like Buchenwald, Theresienstadt, Auschwitz. Like you can you can do the whole March of the Living, the whole tour. No, there's Zoom. just events that are virtual. Like there are events that are done instead of in person at like a synagogue. They're just done online. You don't you can't actually virtually tour the concentration camps. If you want to do that, I'd suggest first reading Anne Frank, Mark, um, and then you could probably <laughs> arrange that. We will get to the Ed Frank moment in this. Can By I, the way, I love that now you don't even have to do the march of the living. It's more like a couch of the living. You just sit there and you click some buttons and you're good. Am I an asshole for saying that nothing about that appeals to me? Like, while I could be, I think, profoundly moved and have been moved by a Holocaust remembrance and other genocide remembrance events that I've been to in person, I can't imagine being like, I'm now going to zoom into a uh, a Holocaust anniversary thing. Like, uh, I think a lot of people did and a lot of people would. And if you think about the uncertainty of this moment, there are a lot of reasons that actually that has even more valence now, this idea of just like being randomly selected, right? Like these ideas actually are kind of happening today. I'm not, again, comparing what, you know, COVID to the Holocaust or whatever, but I'm it's it's a time where our, we can't take for granted what we used to take for granted. And I think that that, that, that has allowed an openness in people, um, in Jewish people, who maybe want to observe this commemoration. Can I ask you, Stephanie, are you – we talked about this a few weeks ago. Do, do you think that there is something in the way Jews are reacting to the – the quarantine stuff that is different from how other ethnic groups might be reacting. No, I agreed with you that those pieces like, are you feeling nervous about coronavirus? You must be a Jew. Like those pieces don't <laughs> land for me because I think I think what you said about that is correct, right? Like there's nothing inherently Jewish about it. I have been thinking though, like as I stockpile beans, as I consider, you know, the sort of like safety plan, right? Like that I have going on. Like I, I think there are ways in which it's the closest 
anyone in my generation has ever been to thinking about things in this way, I think. Right. Just like, you know, um, I downloaded Animal Crossing on my Nintendo Switch before all this started, just like Anne Frank did. <laughs> she was very uh... big and, and having the coolest video games in her little hideout. It seems like you're both very eager to get to the Anne Frank portion of this week's podcast, and I promise you we'll get to it. But just because I never get to hug it out in person with you guys, I, I do want to check in. Like, how how are you guys? What do you, what's up? What's new in Butnik land and Leibowitz land this week since we last broadcast to the J Crew? So actually, I have been up to something kind of fun, um, not entirely behind your back, Mark, but Liel and I have started a new podcast. It's called Hebrew School. I have no idea why I agreed to this, um, but I'm hoping that similarly to how I wasn't sure about agreeing to you wanting to start unorthodox, that I'm trying to like have that same spirit about it. You're trying to say yes to life more is what you're <laughs> saying. Yes, yes. I'm trying to lean in, but not to the mic because I've been leaning into my mic recently and it's not been good. By the way, do you know our producer Josh Cross did tell me that all the podcasting equipment is sold out on Amazon right now? Which means that like dummies <laughs> everywhere are starting podcasts. Um, so let's let's add our names oh, to, the, by the, way, to the list. What an incredible portrait of our culture. Things you can't get right now: <laughs> thermometers, right? Purell, Hagen does co- coffee, ice cream, toilet paper, remote, and podcasting remote equipment. Recording equipment. <laughs> oh my so god! Miguel, can you just describe the show that you dreamt yeah, of? What is this that you guys have cooked up behind my back? So between us, we have about 363 children, right? And we are quarantined with them in very tight quarters. And so we thought, how about we come up with something that would actually entertain the savages? The we being you and Josh and Stephanie. I think the we is just him. (laughs) The royal we of him. Your children now feel, your two children feel like 376 (laughs) children at this point is what you're saying. I think everybody's children feel like 376 children at this point. Josh, the producer, is nodding his head vigorously on our Zoom call. And so the idea was simple. Look, not all of us have had the opportunity of having the Hebrew school education that we had always wanted. Not all of us know as much as we would like to know. And all of us are stuck at home with nothing much to do. So the idea was, why not have a podcast that is a game show, which by the way, as you know, because you know me, game shows are my complete obsession. Like if I had an ideal job, it would be game show host. Like everything about it, the music, the cadence, I love it. Wait, Stephanie, did you know that about Lee? I didn't know that about shocking Leo. to me. I feel like Mark, I could so much more see you saying that. I'm Wink Martindale. I'm John Davidson. <laughs> no, because because you're actually warm and like into people and into conversations. I would just like the job of like walking down like golden stairs and being like, what is the topic today? To <laughs> some imaginary like, voice that comes from- I will be running from, for you know. president. Right. That's exactly right. It's, it's like a psychopath's <laughs> job. It's like the job of a person who's hearing voices in his head, which is me, and it's great. And so we concocted, we cooked up this wild and super fun podcast called Hebrew School, uh, which includes things like trying to guess the correct Hebrew word for chat or app, and listening to very bad but entertaining renditions of famous moments in Jewish history. And my favorite, listening to a bit of phrasing and having to guess if it's the Bible or Taylor Swift. <laughs> yes. Harder than it seems. And the contestants are children, like between the ages of... Seven and 12. Seven and 12. So people should go to iTunes or wherever they get their free podcast and subscribe to Hebrew School. And also, you should sacrifice your children to us. Uh, you need You need guests, right? So people should email hebrewschool at tabletmag.com, right? Hebrew School yes. at tabletmag.com. Indeed. And then episode one, they will hear my children contesting on episode two, Joss's children. And we haven't discussed this yet, Mark, but episode three has to be an Oppenheimer kid. Just saying. 
We're going to stretch them out for, for sweeps week. You got five. All the, Oppen- all the which, Oppenheimer which But you know, oh the funny God. thing for me is my family diagnosed me early on with what they called Monday, Wednesday migraines, which is when at around like four o'clock when I was supposed to be going to Hebrew school, I would suddenly like fall ill. And that really did plague me until I switched out of like Gimel 1 into Gimel 4, like the lowest level class on Tuesday, Thursdays. And I my Monday, Wednesday migraines completely went away. Um, so for me, it's kind of... The idea of reinventing Hebrew school as something actually fun and still educational and informative, but like, I love it. You know what we call Hebrew school in Israel? School. 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 Um, okay. So that's news of you guys. I have nothing to compete with that. I've started no podcasts this week. Um, yeah. Kind of a, a pretty basic week at the Oppenheimer household. Not a basic week, however, in Scotland. News of the Jews. To begin the news of the Jews, I love this story. I don't love stories of anti-Semitism, but I love the protagonist here. Lara Bross, who is the proprietor of Bross Bagels, which apparently has several fine locations in Greater Edinburgh, told the Edinburgh News last week that she'd had to close her five Edinburgh shops. She was furloughing a lot of employees, and she'd asked her landlord for a deal on the rent, which, you know, is something that literally every small business owner in the world has done in the last month. But the landlord, Mario Idemir Demirazin, accused her of exhibiting, quote, typical Jewish behavior in asking for uh, the deal. He told a Turkish newspaper that he's certain that Bross can afford to pay him as his other renters have. He said, quote, she is a clever Jewish lady and she's taking advantage of COVID-19 and making more money than anyone else. (laughs) When I say typical Jewish, I mean they are the richest people in the world and very clever people. She should be proud of her Jewish identity. Jewish people are always clever and there's nothing wrong with that. She should be proud. (laughs) My other tenants, Einstein, Bross, bagels, pay me all the rent. (laughs) Right. So Bross had told Edinburgh News, she said that she dissented from his characterization. She said, I would love to know in any context at any time where the term typical Jewish was used as a compliment. And then, then this is why I have a new small business crush on Lara Bross. She said, I will be happy to offer free bagels for a year to anyone who can provide me with a case in which typical Jewish was a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's funny because, Mark, it does kind of go back to your whole thing about, like, being being a real Christian is such a great thing. When, but if someone calls you a real Jew, you yeah. kind of assume that, like, there's <laughs> something bad in, involved, something negative that they're trying to get at. Totally. A typical Christian, you know, who gives alms to the poor. A typical Jew trying to Jew you down in negotiations. Bad name. <laughs> tried to right, tried to Jew down the, the nice landlord. But hold on. I do love oh, his explanation. I, I do love the kind of what I— Totally meant it as a compliment. They're rich. They should be proud. She's a clever Jewish lady. (laughs) I think I'm on record as saying on this podcast in the past that Scots are my favorite people in the world and Scottish Jews are the best Jews in the world. And this has been confirmed for me when I've met Scottish Jews in Scotland. And also the nicest guy I met in Israel when I was there uh, was a Scottish, uh, you know, a guy who made Aliyah from Scotland. And I just just think Scottish Jews are, are fabuloso. Lara Bross, um, come on Orthodox. You know who else is fabuloso? Western Massachusetts Jews. And those poor Jews had to deal with the fact that just this past week, a man was charged with trying to blow up a Jewish assisted living home in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Now, Longmeadow is important to me because it's the city that everyone mistakenly thinks that I'm from, because it's where <laughs> most of the Jews from Greater Springfield happen to live. Although I'm from actually Springfield, the herb, the large city 
But inevitably, people say, oh, you're from Springfield? Did you go to Longmeadow High? And I'm like, no, because I'm not from Longmeadow. So, so this is what offended you about this story. Is yes. This is so basically- <laughs> right, No other reason to my... report it. It's just that that we're going to talk about. <laughs> anyway, I did grow up about half a mile from the Longmeadow border, and uh, all my love goes out to the people there. I'm really glad that they caught this villain. As if there's not enough going on at nursing homes right now. Like, Seriously. Under lockdown, a lot of them are ravaged by covid now they're being targeted by white supremacists. You're just like, wow. Like, I don't can know. I tell you, just, can I tell you what, like, what offended me about the story? extra messed up. Yeah. Here's extra, extra, extra messed up. Because he didn't just try to burn down the Jewish assisted living facility. He tried to do it by igniting, ready for this, a gas canister. Mm. I was like, Ooh. dude, that's just insensitive. I mean, just do the traditional like rag dipped in gasoline. Don't right. don't bring gas into just it. Just a Molotov cocktail for God's sake. You've suffered man. enough, dude. What's oh. wrong with you? Also, I mean, you have to imagine that like that especially has valence for like Jews in an assisted living home who are of an age where that I don't know. Okay, this right. Is a, Here's this these is a elderly Jews story. in a place that they can't really leave, who remember a time when Jews were murdered in a place they can't really leave. I, uh, Yeah, you're totally, you're right. But also, you're right. there was something that this guy had been posting about or reading about online that was like, let's start like Jewish attack day, like attack the Jews day as like April 2nd or something. Like, it, oh I don't know. God. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to report that it doesn't seem to have really like picked up steam. 5780, <laughs> oh, we're fine. Uh, Liel, with some late breaking news of the Jews, you just came to us with this tonight. I did. Uh, Jewish Nobel laureate Bob <laughs> Dylan has dropped a new tune. Uh, so look, as Dylan fans go, I'm a Dylan fanatic. I have Dylan posters in my house. I've been to, I don't know, 40, 50 Dylan concerts. Which is really crazy because he's bad in concert. Like, you got to really want to hear the songs to go to his concerts. You have to like the abuse yeah. to, to, go to, the, to go to the concert. Uh, and he dropped a new song a couple weeks ago. It was his first in eight years. It was a 17-minute doozy about that burning, <laughs> breaking news issue, the Kennedy assassination. And this week, he released a new song called I Contain Multitudes, which is, of course, a, a riff on Walt Whitman. Right. And it has many lines that are there to convey to you how he is a complicated person. Uh, and it was fine. It's one of these songs where the music plays kind of morbidly. And you hear Bob singing, and he's singing like this. And then comes the line. I'm just like Aunt Frank, like Indiana Jones, and them British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. I'm just like Aunt Frank, like Indiana Jones. I think it's time for a wellness check on Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really don't know what's going on. Like of any character that you could have juxtaposed to kind of make an interesting point about you containing multitudes, Anne Frank and Indiana Jones are the only ones you could think of? Is it because of the cave that they were both like trapped? <laughs> oh, nice gloss. I hadn't really, thought of that. Really, really I'm, I'm reaching here. Interpretation there. Yeah. I think you're giving him way too much credit. What I noticed was, so if you keep reading, it's like, I'm like Anne Frank, like Indiana Jones, and then British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. I go right where all things lost are made good again. I sing the songs of experience like William Blake. I have no apologies to make. So this song, everyone that he's so supposedly like is actually a real person, except for Indiana Jones, which leads me to think, I think he thinks Indiana Jones is a real archaeologist. I can't even get into that line of reasoning because I'm just so stuck on this, this lyric. I drive fast cars and I eat fast foods. I contain multitudes. 
What is this? I feel like this has been like reverse engineered on TikTok to like hit all the like branded promotional marks. Right. So our producer Josh Cross said, okay, well, if we're going to go Anne Frank, what about the comedian Patton Oswalt's tweet? Anne Frank spent two years hiding in an attic and we've been home for just over a month with Netflix, food delivery and video games. And there are people risking viral death by storming state capitol buildings and screaming, open Fuddruckers. Okay. (laughs) I, this, this tweet very, very, very much upset me because here's the thing. Get a new metaphor. Anne Frank is not your metaphor. Like, I just, I'd be more creative than that. Patton Oswalt here could have made his political point without invoking Anne Frank to say, like, I just, I just, I, I find it so derivative. I find it so uncreative. I find it, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm offended by it. I'm almost offended by its unoriginality. But, um, but you're not not offended by it. So no, no, I'm totally, I'm, I'm offended by him and, using this to score a point. And I think I want to get down because I'm not, as, as someone who just, Barely offends. Like, you just offend. It's barely offended, not barely offends. I barely get offended. (laughs) I barely offend multitudes. (laughs) You pointed out to me, Stephanie, a couple weeks ago that somebody had forwarded you Kristen Bell's. It was Instagram. like a regram, but apparently that meme right. is going around. Like Anne Frank had to live in a in an hide in an attic for two years, and all you right. have to do is like sit on your couch. Yep, yep. And I've read stories about it. I read a story in the forward about saying like you know all this Anne Frankism. Why should that bother us? I mean, by this point, we're pretty used to the fact that she is a secular saint trotted out only in the most cliched ways, like Ellie Wiesel and Maya Angelou. Like that is who she is. We know that. Why are we so shocked? Or why are we really still offended? By the fact that people are like, and she's the queen of quarantine. Like <laughs> Anne Frank, the queen of quarantine. Um, getting worked up here. Um, what offends me here is that is this flattening of her story, right? Okay, you're gonna say Anne Frank, she she spent two years hiding in an attic. From what? Pray tell <laughs> right. Patton Oswald. Like, why was she hiding in an attic? Why didn't she have Netflix? Like, this is lazy humor to me. I mean, I just don't think it's funny. I think also to like use Anne Frank here, like to score political points. Anne Frank actually has nothing to do with this. Get another metaphor. (laughs) I'm like riled up. This is like the most my heart rate has been up in a month. I love it. And as Leah Leibowitz, Stephanie Butnick. Also, the one final point that I would make, because I I don't have much to add to Stephanie's masterful narration here. (laughs) I think I just burned a few calories. (laughs) Is, is the fact that, like, literally you would not see this kind of usage done. You would not with, like, see. Any, uh, you would not see any other kind of, you know, <laughs> symbol of any other people treated so casually in this way as a kind of general, cultural, secular saint. You wouldn't see, like, the slaves had to keep right. quiet for months on the Underground Railroad. And all you have to do, <laughs> Rosa Parks had to sit in her seat. To, like, no, you'll never see that. Oh, no, 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 there's, there's tons of Rosa Parks shit. Producer Josh Cross. Anne Frank and Rosa Parks are like the lazy analogy sisters. There's that shit. Wait, is and all Rosa of- Parks in COVID also? Oh my God. The right is all over saying the protesters who were at the Wisconsin City Hall are like Rosa Parks. And I'm like, no way. It's the laziest shit ever. Rosa Parks and Anne Frank, the worst. Whoa, Josh is smacking down the protesters and the bad metaphors. I like him smacking us down. Me too. It's fantastic. It looks like producer Sarah Fredman Ader wants to jump in too. I was just thinking that this really uh, sort of gives new light to Justin Bieber's uh, 
uh, move <laughs> writing. I wish that you know Anne Frank would have been my fan. He's th- thinking of her in uh, in more dimensions. She wasn't just stuck in the attic. She loved Justin Bieber. Who I actually love that comment because he's right. She would have been. <laughs> Who knew that Justin Bieber was so like multidimensional, so pre? You know, he really understood her. I'm still Dude. stuck on Josh Cross telling us that Rosa Parks and Anne Frank are the lazy analogy <laughs> sisters because I used to go to this amazing Tuesday night roving party down in Williamsburg where the DJs were actually the lazy analogy sisters. Like I had no idea. Ophira Eisenberg returns this week as a second-time Jew of the Week. She's a stand-up comic and host of NPR's fabulous trivia show, Ask Me Another, where she interviews and plays games with people like Sir Patrick Stewart, Tay Diggs, fellow unorthodox Jew of the Week, Nick Kroll, and once upon a time, your host, Mark Oppenheimer. She is a regular at The Moth, and her comedic memoir, Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy, has been optioned for a future film that I can't wait to see, by the way. (laughs) Ophira, so good to have you back. How are you? Okay, thanks. I mean, you know, I'm better than most. I'm healthy. I'm fine. But also, I'm okay. Not fantastic because here I am living in this augmented reality. Right. All of a sudden, it's Ready Player One for all of us. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thank you for making the time. Ophira, it's great to reconnect with you. I have to tell you that you were a guest on our third ever episode in (laughs) August 2015. If that didn't used to feel like a million years ago, it is officially a million years ago. We've all grown. The news that we were discussing that day in our News the Juice segment. (laughs) Oh, no. Just to give you a little bit of a heads up, Jon Stewart was handing the reins over to Trevor Noah. Remember when that was the issue of the moment that everyone had? (laughs) (laughs) Something about Israel and Canada was happening. I don't know. BB did something. But you were pregnant at the time. Yeah, that's right. And now you are at home caring for said child. He's four years old. The timing is exact. It's amazing the trajectory over the last, I guess, three weeks now of how this all feels because three weeks feels about as long as 2015. Time has both slowed down and sped up. It's a very strange thing. And I'm hungry all the time, yet I'm totally full. <laughs> when you go on Facebook and you see some of your friends who are, <sighs> shall we say, without children saying, today I made quinoa bowl and learned Swahili. <laughs> so that makes me feel terrible. I mean, jealous. I'm actually authentically jealous. You should not be jealous during a pandemic. That's ridiculous because you're just fortunate enough to be living through it. But yeah, I'm totally jealous because my time is different and busier. I feel exhausted. Not only that, but I'm still trying to work some jobs. So also people are like, my career is on fire. I pitched like three television shows and they all (laughs) sold. I'm like, oh, and my career is not going well enough during the pandemic. I'm a terrible parent because clearly I haven't done enough of it. So that's good to know. Like I'm just failing. I'm failing at every level. Well, we have a new plan for you, which is you get to come back every four years of your child's life. Okay, so when Lucas turns eight, you'll know you're due for another appearance on Unorthodox. We'll have our bar mitzvah together, I think. That's right. We'll see if he's reading yet. We'll see how he's doing and we'll know how you did during COVID-19. I'll put that in my Google calendar following this. Put it in now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Something to look forward to. How are things going at Ask Me Another? Like when when you have a game show and of course you tape this wonderful show live at, is it still at the Bell House? Yes, that's right. Still at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Like this is a fabulous, exciting, really like vibrant live event. Have you moved it online? And if so, what's that like? Well, you know, if there was any kind of glimmer of hope and maybe... 
you have found the same thing doing these because you're not in studio so much anymore. But you can have guests from around the world, right? So we are doing it basically from our homes. There is no audience. We are still playing games, but the idea that there is any sort of real competition is gone. I made this very dark joke the first week that was cut out. They said, you know, you should mention to the listeners that we're not doing a final round. And I was like, uh, well, there's no final round because I guess we're in the final round. <laughs> so they were like, cut, cut that out. That's a joke that, of course, we would have played at the intro. We would have played it would have been the cold open. It would have been afterwards. It would have been a bonus episode. <laughs> <laughs> Who cuts that in your public radio world? Like, where does the decision come and what's the thinking that people can't handle that? Well, because our show is basically sandwiched in between news. It's on terrestrial radio, and that's how a lot of people... Sure. That's how NPR thinks about it, too. And so they are thinking that people are looking for a real lift up. And for that moment, they were like, all right, let's just try a little bit of a lighter tone. (laughs) And instead of having contestants that are people that are just great at trivia, Jonathan Colt and I have just been calling our friends, like comedians and musicians, and playing games with them. So actually, the entire show is very different right now. And it's actually, it's really nice, a lot more about connecting and a little less about the games. We play fewer questions and it's more just about doing something to distract our minds from what's going on, playing a silly game for the heck of it. And of course, we've been talking about reformatting the show and changing things. And how are we going to do this for years? And here we are, by necessity, just doing something different. And uh, so far, the feedback has been so positive. I'm sure just like your listeners, they're happy you're doing anything at all to give them consistency and something that they love. Mm -hmm. So maybe, who knows, maybe we will be changing this permanently. I want to get back to the darkness for a second. <laughs> that final round, we're all in. We changed it to, you know, we'll we'll let our contestants know how they're doing, but really we just want to know, how are they doing? Aww. <laughs> but we'll let them know how they're doing. You know, it was some sort of... Oh, and PR, you sweet public radio, you. <laughs> I know. So look, if there's one time in which I think comedians really thrive is when shit gets really dark, right? (laughs) I mean, this is when you guys, as a species, kind of rise up. I I want a kind of unfettered access to that corner, if we may, of your mind. What are some of the kind of very dark, very funny things that you've been thinking these last three weeks? I was just joking today that with Ask Me Another, for example, they were like, oh, people really like these episodes. So I guess we are providing something for people during COVID-19. And I was like, well, those are the people who haven't lost their taste. (laughs) I mean, very, very dark. You know, I've read a lot of stuff about how older men are the primary target, strangely, of this virus. So... That's one upside. (laughs) There's that. There's that. Ophira Eisenberg, keeping ageism alive in 2020. (laughs) Why can't it be the people on my list? That's terrible. (laughs) And then, you know, with the social distancing, you live in New York, you're used to interacting with strangers all the time, whether you like it or not. And so now we are both off the streets. And if we are on the streets, we are far away. So I was walking down the street and the only other person was on the same side of the sidewalk as me. And you know, the the right thing to do right now is just to cross to the other side to maintain social distance. We both had face masks on, but as they came a little closer, it was someone I knew that I don't particularly like. And I crossed to the (laughs) other side of the street and I was like, it's already working out. (laughs) 
I mean, there's some upsides here. Yeah, a stranger stopped me and said, uh, hey, there's a there's an eagle's nest over there. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. And then he said, isn't it amazing how Mother Nature provides and replenishes the earth for us? And I was like, no, no, we're not talking. We're done. We're over. You're like, get six feet away from me. Yeah, not you. Not you. So, Ophira, we actually had booked this interview to talk about the taping of your comedy album, which was supposed to be yesterday, right? Yeah, great. Sure was. <laughs> I mean, how do you deal with that? Obviously, you're able to make jokes, but like, that sucks. That totally sucks. I'm really sorry. Yeah. Yeah, totally sucks. I mean, not as much as the economic infrastructure of the nation collapsing. But it's basically the same. They're on par. Feels exactly the same. And the other thing is when you think about when are we all going to be back in a place like a comedy club. I don't know when the last time you were at a comedy club, but they are notoriously packed close together. That's what makes them good. Dark spaces. So you do not see how really dirty they are. There is a lot of close bodies, things coming out of people's mouths. I mean, my mouth is open spraying shit. If I'm doing my stuff right, their mouth is open spraying stuff. I wonder how long it's going to be. Maybe maybe we're going to put a plexiglass <laughs> barrier in between this. Like at Walgreens. <laughs> It'll be like the bank. That's right. Can you do comedy over Zoom? Like, does that feel the same? From my experience, what has been better is joking around with people and doing bits or stories than people interject or throw their thought in so it's more of a conversation or if you're doing like a few jokes and you have people around you and they are being ultra supportive and laughing but I think that for me straight to camera no one to look at but the camera and doing a routine I don't think comedy was ever meant to be delivered like that that is something I don't know what that is. Because even when you watch a special, a comedy special on Netflix or something, you're watching someone perform for an audience. You're not watching someone perform for you on screen, basically. That's right. So you still feel the interaction. Yeah. And I was doing, someone asked me to do a story a few nights ago on another show, but they were on screen and I just sort of told it to them, a short one, like just four minutes. And they interacted with me throughout it. And it was, of course, I didn't tell it the same way that I would on stage. But it was great. Actually, I was like, oh, we figured out a few more things in the story that I should write down because those are better ways to go about it. So similar muscle group, different muscles. What do you think? So thank you for asking. I have this thing that I've been noticing, which is that like Zoom and Jews don't mix. No. Because of the interrupting factor. Like when, when Liel, Mark, and I are sitting in an, a studio, a sentence is not completed. <laughs> and here we actually have to, I see what we're doing. We stop. Like, Liel, I'm, I'm looking at your face with that weird background and you have not jumped in at all because you know it's just going to like sound weird. It's going to take a second and Ophira, it's going to throw Ophira off. Correct. It's kind of crazy. Ophira, last time you were with us, you were planning to do a pregnant stand-up special, right? Yeah, I did that too. Yep. You did that too. And like now you're the trailblazer because now you've got your Amy Schumer and your Ali Wong. And like, were you the first? I thought I was the first. Ali Wong's aired actually right before I taped mine or right after it. I was like, what? Because it felt like nobody was doing it at the time. Then Corey Kahaney, who's a comic you might know, told me that she had done it years and years before. And then someone else told me that Joan Rivers did something. Whoa. So then I was like, oh, we're just noticing it now because we're in a little bit of a trend and there's just more female comics, I think. But I guess it's historically happened I'm sure at different points, the viewers were like, oh, I don't want to see this. <laughs> Can't put Lucy and Desi in bed together. So Ophira, what have you been doing to entertain yourself when you're not running a preschool at home and working on the side? Like, what are you watching? What are you reading? 
entertain us with your choices. So first of all, I really have like one hour of television. One. So it has to be really good, right? Yeah. And you know what? I am very escapist. I tried to watch a bit of Tiger King, but it is compelling the way it's edited and put together. And But watching like really the worst people on the planet just does not feed my soul right now. Yeah, like if I wanted to watch a show about a delusional person with terrible hair running for president, <laughs> I'll just watch MSNBC. I said to my husband, I was like, you watch Joe Exotic is going to be the next president. And he was like, but he's in jail. And I was like, well, that was, and that was, and? who cares? That sweeps for us. That's season two. It's bigger and better. So first of all, we're really behind on The Good Place. So we went all the way to that, actually missing last season because we have to figure out how to get that. Then my husband figured out how to get the first season of the Great British Baking Show, what it was called, the Great British Bake Off and not on BBC yet. Ooh, Mm -hmm. it's the early, early British version of the now American show. (laughs) There's no star baker. They're still figuring it out. Interesting. The bootleg. They have no flour, no sugar. They just... (laughs) It's literally just mud cakes. It's Exodus. <laughs> the people aren't that great yet. Like they're really much more like home bakers that are pretty good. They're not even British. They're all American. It's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then Shit's Creek been watching. So I'm talking very light, warm, escapist. Yeah. Easy. Pedestrian. And I'll tell you something. The truth about me is that I've always been a pedestrian television watcher everyone's like this amazing thing that is disturbing and real i'm like never for me that's right (laughs) this thing that makes me cry all the time absolutely not Mm -hmm. i'm with you there the big bang theory please and eight seasons of it if i can that's where i draw the line you just found the line if people want to check in with your work now obviously they can't go be in the audience of your stand-up special or your comedy record or no Can you keep going through all the things that aren't working out? Keep going. I'm going to list all the gigs you've lost in the past two months. Where can they get their extra helping of Ophira Eisenberg? I do have two older albums. They're a few years old now. But anyways, they're both on Spotify. The first one is called As Is, and the second one's called Bangs. I have bangs. We'll find out right now. Will I have bangs soon? Will I try to cut them myself? Will I grow them out? It's an interesting time. (laughs) And then I do have that special inside joke, which is the one that I taped while I was pregnant. That is available. And then my book, you can still buy my book. That is all about touching faces and other parts because it's called Screw Everyone Sleeping My Way to Monogamy. It's all about not social distancing to like the millionth degree. It's the perfect escapism for right now. Escape into a time (laughs) when Ophira could sleep her way to monogamy. (laughs) That's right. I put my hands in mouths. Oh, did I? (laughs) All I want to do right now is like touch my face. I know. Although supposedly if once we learn this, our complexions will be so much more amazing because transferring all that dirt and oil to your face, terrible. Venice Canal's clean, oily faces be gone. So Venice Canal, has that been debunked? Can you please let me know? Oh, I don't. I'm sure it has. I'm sure. I mean, well, it is true. This is obviously good for the carbon footprint. I mean, you, you can't. It is what it is. God's not crazy. Like, this is the master plan. Excuse me? What? This is the final round. <laughs> this is the final round. <laughs> I'm just saying, you were onto something when you said it's the final round, and then NPR made you backpedal it, but you had deep theological wisdom that we're going to get out there because NPR wouldn't let you. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Ophira Eisenberg, thank you so much. I uh, will see you in like three and a half years. Yeah, I'll be around. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see you for Lucas's eighth birthday. Thank you. Yes, you're invited over Zoom. (laughs) 
Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? Mailbox, one letter from the tropics this week. Hey, Mark, Liel, and Stephanie, my name's Brittany, and I'm one of maybe 20 Jews living in the divided city of Nicosia, Cyprus. Out here, swastikas are used in soccer club logos, and people think all Jews have payases. It's a trip. Crazier still, I was raised in Indiana in an interfaith home with a Catholic-turned-Buddhist father and a Jewish-turned-tarot-reading mother. As a kid, I always resonated with Judaism, but was afraid of the family drama I'd provoke if I ever said that out loud. Now that I'm an expat Jew with kids of my own, I'm trying hard to keep Judaism alive in my home without much community support available to help me out. Needless to say, your podcast has been crucial. Best, Brittany. P.S. I'm very excited for the podcast Hebrew School. Brittany, I'll say you don't have much community support. Your your community actually has swastikas everywhere. Well, we're glad to be there for you. So what do we have to offer this super listener, Brittany, who wants to keep Judaism alive in her home, but doesn't have any sort of Jewish contact in, in Nicosia, Cyprus? Although, Brittany, you should know, as you probably already know by now, that your lovely city is the number one destination for Israelis who don't want to get married in the Israeli rabbinate. Oh, yeah. They all go to Nicosia, Cyprus. To have a lovely civil ceremony. It's a big tourist destination. At least you can get a minion. Yes. And a good falafel. <laughs> hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show.
So our next guest, wow, I almost can't believe we booked him. Mark, how are you feeling about our next guest? I was really nervous. First of all, I'm just like, I'm over the moon that we were able to get him. I mean, the time that you and I spent going back and forth with the PR people, assorted publicists, assorted different firms that he had engaged. But I didn't think we'd ever book him. I, did you think it was possible or was it just one of those pie in the sky, like, you know, Matt Damon, maybe we'll get Matt Damon as Gentile of the Week. Exactly, exactly. It was like sort of like the Jew of the Week that we always like knew we wanted. Right. But just sort of assumed we'd never get. So, Liel, will you actually intro this week's guest for us? It will be my distinct pleasure and honor. One of my favorite people, tis I. I am the Jew of the Week. Liel Leibowitz finally making his debut, not as a host, <laughs> but as a guest on the receiving end of our tough, tough questions. He is here to tell us about a book he just wrote. It's called Stan Lee, A Life in Comics. And it's part of the Yale University Press's Jewish Lives series, which is a really, really fun series that basically makes Jewish figures relevant to sort of more broad audiences. And we'll get to the book in a bit. But Liel, since we have you... Guys, I'm so nervous! We have a lot of questions. Mark, you want to start? <laughs> sure, absolutely. This is your golden opportunity. I cannot refuse you an answer to anything you ask. So forget the book. Just... Let's talk. Liel, when I found out you were writing a book about comic book writer and hero, creator of the Marvel Universe, Stan Lee, in some ways this was like the perfect book for me to interview you about because it gets to a big fundamental gulf between us. I don't mean the gulf between being 6'5 and 5'7 and 3 quarters. <laughs> the gulf between 350 right. and sort of 155, 160. I don't mean between left and right politically. I mean the gulf between those sort of smart, nerdy kids who went the like comic book, but also general like Dungeons and Dragons, fantasy geek dweebo route. And those who sort of eschewed that and desperately made a play to be with the cool crowd. And you are the representative of the former. <laughs> you went all in for like <laughs> magic and superheroes. Oh, 100%. And I went all in for like desperately fawning after the cool lacrosse players, hoping that they would throw me their crumbs and let me sit at their lunch table. No, no, you had hope. I had contempt. Herein lies the whole difference. Right. That was always the lunch table of, frankly, the kids who would have been nice to me and I might have had more in common with, except I just wasn't into Lord of the Rings. I couldn't get past page seven. You, on the other hand, went all in for the fantasy, the sci-fi, and the comics. What is that sensibility that I, I, I just didn't have? That's an amazing question. And honestly, in here, I think, lies the core foundational high school psychology <laughs> 101. And I really do think it comes down to that sliver of choice that you make if you're that nerdy kid and you understand your place in the ecosystem, right, in, in the jungle, do you ever believe that one day you'll be hanging with the lions? Or are you one of these cats who says, you know what? Me and the rest of the giraffes are just going to sit here in this weird corner and nibble on our like foliage or acacia or whatever it is that giraffes eat. And I, I will just grow to despise you, beautiful people. And, you know, everything about our respective dispositions tells me that you're the former while I'm the latter. Honestly, it never occurred to me that the former was even a possibility. I've never been one of those kids who are like, one day maybe the cool girl would like me. It's like, I'm not even going to look at that. I am going to go on a D&D campaign for seven weeks with three other guys named Avi <laughs> in the basement eating bomba. That's life. Avi, 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 and Liel. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> it's fundamentally an escapist impulse, right? Isn't that what unites all of these passions, you know, in terms of fantasy literature, science fiction, prog rock, 
and comic books? Is it like life is so terrible that I just want to dive deep down and out? I think you're being too kind. Escapism is is a kind of entry level. It's it's the foyer, if you will, of that complex. Once you go in and into the living room, so to speak, you find that it's actually, I think, about delusions of grandeur because you say, hey, I can't control anything. I'm this completely insignificant person who is not only already low on the totem pole because I'm a freaking kid, but in the kid verse, I am actually all the way toward the back. So I'm going to imagine that my name is Thorsten Ling, the great wizard who can cast a level 13 eradication spell. And I'm going to feel really good about myself for about 13 minutes. So the book you've written is about Stan Lee, who was a comic book writer, not illustrator. Who was that kid? Who was that kid and Jewish kid from New York, got into the comic book world, which was very Jewy like Hollywood, because Jews couldn't get into advertising or the fancy law firms, but comic books was a Jewish world. And he ended up creating the Marvel Universe. Now, I know that to people who are that kid, like this means something. Like Superman is DC Comics and Spider Man is Marvel. And this is a whole give people a sense of like what Stan Lee created and how it was special within the comics universe. First of all, a little bit about Stanley in the context of this conversation. Stanley was a kid who grew up first in Upper Manhattan and then in Upper Upper Manhattan and then in the Bronx. His family kept moving. Just going north. Just kept going up and up and up and up. Right. To smaller and crummier apartment because it was the Great Depression and his father lost his job. And Stan grew up being that nerdy kid, watching his father unable to provide, watching his family barely make ends meet. And so he developed this sensation that one day he would like to be a figure of the utmost power. When he was in high school, he stole a painter's ladder, climbed up and wrote on the ceiling, Stan Lee as God. (laughs) And so that is a very good training for someone who is a world creator. But then when he found himself getting the only job that he could, which was as literally a sandwich getter and ink pot filler, at his uncle's comic book and other publication company, he started thinking about comic books seriously. And here's what he saw. And and this is something that I and I think many other comic nerds kind of understood intuitively. There was something really flipped up about Superman and Batman and the rest of the other first-generation DC comic creations. Because even though all these comic book icons were created by Jews, I mean, Schuster and Siegel, who created Superman, and Bob Kane, who created Batman, were all Jews, but they were sort of goy-facing, if you will. They were sort of creating characters who felt extremely wrought out of the American Christian mythology. I mean, if you look at Superman, Superman is basically Jesus Christ, right? He's a figure who came from another planet who is completely infallible, and he will save and redeem us all. And that's a really good kind of mask for a Jewish creator to wear to create a character that he thinks the Gentiles would like. Stanley had a very different thought. He wanted comic book heroes who felt and talked and sounded like the men and women he saw. People with flaws, people with egos, people with neurosis, people who spent just as much time arguing with each other as saving the world. And that one key bit of insight changed everything. Is there an argument that actually Stan Lee in embracing what we would call Jewishness, right? Neuroses, fallibility, questioning, conflict. That was the key to his his success. I mean, I'm asking this question again, sort of like Mark, as someone who like understands that there are comic books, understands that they're important doesn't really understand that whole world. But is there an argument to be made that like Stanley's success, Stanley Lieber's success, if we may, was rooted in the fact that he didn't shy away from his background the way other creators did? A hundred percent. Look, I think if you look at the DC comic universe, it's a New Testament, right? There's a Christ figure, Superman, and then there are apostles. If you look at Stan Lee's creations, it's the Talmud. It's a bunch of wise 
powerful rabbinic-like creatures who spent literally the entirety of their existence arguing over increasingly minute points. And, and Stanley reveled in that. And that gives these books their very strange, cool power. In fact, he was about to quit. He was 40 years old before he'd ever created any of his famous creations. He hated his job. He thought comic books were really dumb. You know, he said, what's the point of reading a Superman comic? It's like, he swoops in, he saves the girl, he saves the day, he swoops out, rinse, repeat. And then as he was about to quit, his very wise wife said to him, how about you do one comic book, just one, if you're going to quit anyway, the way you want to do it? And he's like, you know what, I will. And he came up with the Fantastic Four, which is basically as Talmudic as comic books get, because all these cats do is argue. That's actually really funny because it sounds like a little bit like Abraham and Sarah almost, not to do the thing that you're saying he does with his characters to him and his biography, but like he was 40. He wasn't particularly young, right? When his career took off, uh, his wife had to encourage him. This behind the scenes actually does sound like these stories we know. So can you give us like a few examples if someone didn't know what the four of the Fantastic Four were or like some of these examples of the Talmudic figures in his work? So basically here he is, 40 years old, career going nowhere, living in a small house out in Long Island with a kid and a wife trying to figure things out. And his wife tells him, you know, go ahead and do one the way you would have done it, the way you'd like to do it. Do one that's like your ideal. And so the first thing he does is he turns to his longtime frenemy, collaborator, pain in the side, genius, an artist named Jack Kirby, who is another kid from the Lower East Side. But whereas Stan Lee was Mark, you know, the kid who thought I could be with the beautiful people, Jack Kirby was me. He's a tough, fighting kind of ineloquent guy who just wanted to sit in his studio and, and do his work. And... Not only did Jack Kirby do the art for the Fantastic Four, but Jack Kirby actually kind of became a character in the Fantastic Four, as did Stan Lee. Stan Lee cast himself as Mr. Fantastic, of course, because his ego was never too small, but also a character who's, while a brilliant scientist, also severely flawed because his own huge ego doesn't let him see his limitations. And he cast Jack Kirby as The Thing, an orange-hued, rock-like creature who is rough and gruff but with a heart of gold. And the entire comic book is really about their tensions and their relationship. I have to guess that this is not like a common take on Stanley, right? Like that your book is sort of offering a bit of a different biographical lens through which to examine his work. And you sort of did the same thing with your Leonard Cohen book, A Broken Hallelujah, which is really an amazing, an amazing book. It's called A Spiritual Biography. And I guess I'm wondering, why is it that that is sort of the tack you take when you're undertaking these biographical projects? And also, what it is about you that needs to look at their work through this, almost this, this Talmudic lens yourself? Well, that's, that's a fascinating question. You know, for a guy who's written his share of biographies, I actually really dislike biographies. I think... At some point, if you read enough famous people biographies, at some point, I think they all start to kind of blend into one another. Have you had that experience of sort of like reading like a pop star's biography? Like, oh, yeah, abandoned by his father at 14 and then sent to military school. Yes, I've read that story about 700 times. It's not really that interesting. What's interesting is how that person took that particular path and then forged it into something that is grander, how that person connected into some living biome of inspiration and of tradition and of artistic quivering that made for this incredible, incredible art. And, and that is both a much more insightful way to look at the person's work and also kind of a much more fun challenge for a writer. So 
I think I choose targets who seem to me to share my predilections and obsessions, by which I mean to say people who are deeply connected in one way or another to Jewish tradition. And I had a sense that Stan Lee was really that. And here's how I had that sense, because he was asked about 7,000 times throughout his career, does your Jewish upbringing inspire this at all? Does it have anything to do with the things that you learned or thought about as a kid going to shul? And he would always say something like, oh, that's really interesting. I've never thought of this in my life, which is how you know that this is clearly the key element in this entire work. So we publicly didn't really say any of that. But I guess what I want to know is like him and his own relationship with Judaism. So he grows up as a sort of like good shul going Jew, although he made a real big effort to always say in every interview and biography that he only went to shul because there was a girl there he really liked and he wanted to be next to her. Whatever. That's fine. And then he doesn't talk about this. And not only does he not talk about this, but he kind of protests too much, right? He's like, oh, no, no, I've never, ever, ever considered it. And I kind of followed his trace, trying to do my best to find that one smoking gun, that one moment of inspiration that would actually teach me that all these cats, the Spider-Mans and the Hulks and the Iron Mans, had something profoundly Jewish about them. And it was really hard because, you know, I, I played this game that I like to play, and there's a lot of it in the book of weaving threads. Oh, Spider-Man is like the biblical Cain because it's all about taking personal responsibility. And I did this kind of work. And then I came across one little known, but I think kind of incredibly insightful fact, which is this. In the early 70s, when Stan Lee finally takes over Marvel Comics, not just as a managing director, but as publisher and boss and celebrated for all his mighty creations, Marvel fets him with an evening in Carnegie Hall. They take out the entirety of Carnegie Hall. They get all entertainers and circus freaks and poets and journalists and all the cool bohemia celebrity gaggle comes to celebrate Stanley. And they tell Stanley, you could do whatever you want. You have 15 minutes of this evening. Go on stage, do whatever you want. And he goes on stage and he reads a poem he'd written just for the occasion. And the poem is called God Cried. And it's the most deep theological observation about God surveying his universe and God's relationship with man and man's relationship with God. And literally the stuff that he had never before or after discussed. And when I read this and I, I reprint this, I think in the first time in a major print book in my book, when I read this, I was sort of like, right, I am not at all surprised. <laughs> that period in the book was very interesting for me, the late 60s and early 70s, partly because it was around then that he started wearing a toupee. <laughs> Once men get weird about their hair, and I realize this is entirely gendered, I don't have this sort of judgment or, or analysis, or I'm not that interested in women who start coloring their hair or wear a wig or whatever. Once you go orange or once you go toupee, it's so obvious and it's so strangely unmanly, right? It's like you're willing to do this kind of feminized thing out of your own vanity. It goes so deep. So I was sad for Stanley when he started wearing the toupee. That was also the period, though, where he really kind of said, yeah, I'm a celebrity. I've arrived, and now I have to learn how to be a celebrity. I'm going to sit for the profile in Esquire magazine, in which they kind of make him out to be like the big boss. While Jack Kirby is sitting next to him, they make him out to be like the sandwich boy. His ego is just being fed so much. The other thing is he starts going on college tours. He starts visiting the countercultural hippie kids on campuses who, it turns out, love Marvel comics and have decided that the Marvel Universe and the Hulk in particular is 
this kind of embodiment or avatar of anti-government countercultural rebellion. Did that surprise him? He was a bit more establishmentarian than that. It seemed like he leaned into it because it was the latest wave of how to stay famous and stay relevant. I think he played fast and loose with that because he had a real problem. You know, he understood very well that the college circuit is giving him his, you know, lifeblood. At the same time, he understood that the college circuit was incredibly mercurial. At some point around that period, for example, he thought, hey, I'm famous and the kids love me. I'll do a talk show. And so he did a talk show. There's exactly one episode of it. You could watch it, the pilot on YouTube. It's one of the most ghastly things ever because he sits there with these kids and he tries to be, you know, glib, cool Uncle Stan. And they're like, actually, no, we're Marxist revolutionaries who want to dismantle the government. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm a guy who just wants to go to the cool dinner party. We're not at all on the same wavelength. So when you read Marvel comics from that period, it's really interesting. They really try to thread that line very carefully. They were like, Spider-Man encounters a race riot on campus. But then it all works out by page seven. You know, everything is fine. Stan Lee goes in a comic book and writes, you know, an editorial about... Why can't we all get together and bigotry is horrible, but then we're back to aliens from outer space wreaking havoc. It was hard for him. So at that point in your book, I was thinking like, what's the future of the Marvel universe now that there really is no campus counterculture of that truly revolutionary kind? It's all been co-opted by the organization kid. And then you conclude by making the argument, oh, it moved to the movies. And here's where you and I drift even farther apart. Like, I don't think I've seen one of the Marvel Universe movies. And there's, what, 30 of them? And apparently they're big. They sell tickets. Apparently, like, the kids have seen them. Apparently, people like the Avengers. But are, are the movies, are they really continuing his vision? I mean, is that where the, the Marvel everyman energy has moved to? Or are kids just, like, going to see them because of the special effects? Here's where not only you and I differ, but I think... I also differ from a lot of other individuals who think, a la Martin Scorsese, that the Marvel movies are just kind of the death of cinema because they're big, dumb explosion fests. Marvel was at this crossroad about 15 years ago. They had all these amazing characters, the Spider-Mans, the Hulks, you know, people that they just didn't know what to do with. And then they hired a very young executive named Kevin Feige. And Kevin Feige was really the kind of spiritual son of Stan Lee because he understood, again, it's the same Talmudic insight. He understood that what people wanted weren't just kind of like big, blustery, you know, savior from the sky coming and, and saving us all. What they wanted is a universe in which characters who were simultaneously deeply inspired and powerful and also deeply flawed and weak, really bickered with each other and a world in which domestic dramas were as forceful as galactic battles. And he started creating this and he created this very, very intelligently by, by literally plotting it out as this kind of universe with its own plans, with its own unfurling, with its own order. I think these movies are tremendous. I think they capture Stanley's spirit very well. I think they're both entertaining, but also once you really get down to it, they're deeply human movies. These characters aren't caricatures. They aren't flat representations of fantasy. They are real heroes in the sort of tragic Homeric sense of the word. And that's just a beautiful thing to behold. So, Liel, let's get practical here. Give us one comic book to start with and give us one Marvel movie that we should all be watching to just get a sense of, of what it is that you're talking about here. Uh, Marvel movie, I'm going to say, as a kind of entry-level thing, to watch Thor Ragnarok, if only to see Jeff Goldblum in spectacular getup pronounce Asgard, the seed of the gods, as Asgard. 
And as for comic book, this is not the most popular choice, but it's absolutely my favorite because it's just super weird. And I'll tell the origin story because the origin story captures the essence of it. The way the relationship between Stan Lee and Jack Kirby would work is that Stan Lee would give Jack Kirby a kind of, you know, very, very concise story and then say, go make something out of that. And then Jack Kirby would just draw whatever he wanted to draw, and Stan Lee would write words on the pictures, which was called the Marvel Method, and really kind of streamlined the whole production of comic books and made them able to produce a whole lot more comic books in a much shorter time. So one day, he assigns Jack Kirby a Fantastic Four story, and he gets back the art. And in the middle of the page, for no apparent reason, there is a silver dude in the middle of the sky on a freaking surfboard. Now, any other editor would have been like, are you kidding me? Like, why did you mess up my entire storyline with this guy? Stan Lee, being a very soulful guy, said, oh my God, I like this person. What's his deal? And so he gave this character, who he named aptly enough the Silver Surfer, basically the backstory of Abraham. He's a person to whom a very powerful God has spoken, told him to leave the country that he loved, or the planet that he loved, and his home and his family, and go do that vengeful God's bidding. And once the Fantastic Four encounter him, it becomes this kind of really deep, almost biblical narrative about free will versus divine intervention, about you know morality versus love. It's a fantastic, fantastic book. The first appearance of the Fantastic Four is where you ought to start. Okay, so he's Abraham. Is there like a Job? Is there a Cain? Spider-Man is definitely Cain, right? Spider-Man is someone who has failed to learn the fundamental lesson of the first three chapters of Genesis, which is you are absolutely your brother's keeper. He's someone who's famously come into a lot of power, then failed to stop the murder of a person who then turned up to be his uncle and was sort of guilted by it into a life of roaming and roving throughout the land doing good only to repent for his fundamental weakness, which was failing to take care of those in need. I see the Hulk very much as Adam, the first man, grappling with his responsibilities towards a kind of strange new planet. Is there a Noah? I was told to keep the book short. (laughs) (laughs) That is like the most compelling argument I've heard for like picking this all up. The idea that there are deeply, deeply foundational texts revealed and foundational themes and blueprints in there that I think will appeal to our listeners. So well done. Thank you for writing a book for them and for us. What's like your favorite thing that you've discovered along the way? My favorite bit probably, and Mark and I were just texting about it last night, was that during his military service in World War II, he was part of the Army Signal Corps. His official military designation was playwright, He was one of six people to have that designation, and the others included William Saroyan, Dr. Seuss, and Frank Capra. What? (laughs) All of them wrote these propaganda films and brochures for the army, and Stan Lee's most kind of memorable achievement (laughs) was a poster in which you see a soldier with a, let's say, a, a particularly leery gaze in his eyes saying the immortal line that became a slogan for soldiers throughout the war, VD, not me. (laughs) It was a poster to convince soldiers not to get venereal diseases while whoring it out in Italy or France or wherever they were. I have consoled myself that if the draft ever came for me, I would be able to end up in one of those units (laughs) where my job, like, it would basically be, you know, the three of us and Josh and Sarah sitting around, like, we'd be the podcast core. (laughs) (laughs) Military podcasting. (laughs) Liel... 
Yehoshua, Benzion, Batsalel, Bigthin, Leibowitz. <laughs> Kol Hakavod, Mazel Tov, and congratulations on... No, one more question. Which character do you most identify with in the universe? Silver Surfer. For sure. Is it the surfboard? It's the surfboard, which was an early love. It's the weirdness. It's the disconnectedness. It's the feeling. And sometimes, like, you just don't understand these humans. Like, what are they talking? What are they doing? What is it that they want to achieve here? He's a marvelous character. Guys, it's Josh. Producer Josh. I sat with Liel and we recorded the audiobook version of this. Sat in his living room, was super nice. And the whole time he's like, just just wait till we get to Silver Surfer. Because he's so weird and he's so amazing and he's so perfect. And so like the actual excitement of watching Liel try to describe why Silver Surfer is not this weirdo, but somebody who is the example of all of us. If you had asked me just from having listened to him read the book, that's definitely where Liel saw himself. And, and the Hulk, because, you know... Big, dumb, and full of rage with glimmers of some kind of intellectual life in a previous incarnation. Other important bit there, if people want to get the audiobook, it's Liel doing the reading. And Josh doing the producing. And that's pretty sweet. It's basically just like a long form version of unorthodox. Correct. To me, what comes through so clearly in reading this book is that Stanley really helped you. Reading this book and knowing you, it, it all sort of pieces together. And I love what you've done here, which is basically make that version of Stan Lee relatable to all of us um, and allow us to experience that as well. I think we only ever write books about ourselves. I don't think any human being is capable of writing or thinking about anything fundamentally but themselves. And, you know, here I was. I was seven years old, visited New York for the first time, and introduced to this amazing store downtown called The Forbidden Planet, which still exists in, in some variation. And I could make the argument to my parents that I should be allowed to buy as many comic books as I wanted because they would help me learn to read English, which seemed a perfectly fine educational goal. And that ploy worked, and I left there with a very kind of heavy loot. And not only did I actually learn how to read English from these comic books, but I actually learned, as you said, a lot about my own feelings. Liel, we're so proud of you for writing this book, Stan Lee, A Life in Comics. You can get it online wherever books are sold. You can find the audiobook, which Liel reads. We can't wait for our listeners to read this book and just sort of like write in with their thoughts because we could just make this into like a book club, basically, where every week we just like read someone's comments about The Silver Surfer. The nerdiest book club ever. I would last about 12 posts in that thread and then I'd be out for good. I want to draw out like the comic book nerds among us right like this is their time to shine so unorthodoxatabletmag.com send us all your thoughts Avengers assemble so here's what we're gonna do sort of like what I did with Ben's book I think that if people buy Liel's book I actually bought an ebook I bought the Kindle version so I'll count myself in this in this crowd email a screenshot of your receipt and also list your address send it to unorthodoxatabletmag.com and Liel will like send you something maybe it's like the perfect comic for you maybe it's like some funny thing about who he thinks you are an illustration of Spider-Man it might be a Leibovitz signed doodle a surprise so that'll be fun so unorthodoxatabletmag.com Liel thanks for coming on the show we really appreciate you taking the time what a good Jew of the week thank you for having me uh we did the mailbox. Mazel tovs. Liel, Stephanie, mazel tovs. Who has a mazel tov? Oh, I have a mazel tov to end all mazel tovs. My mazel tov is to my righteous friend, the tzaddik. He's been on the show. He's one of my favorite people, Scott Harris. Get this. So this guy figures out that, you know, it's spring. You want to do spring cleaning, but you can't go to all these, you know, Goodwill and all the other locations that you would have gone to to give your furniture. And these places are really hurting 
for stuff that's a big part of what they have to sell. And so he launched the Quarantine Spring Clean Challenge. He got Goodwill ready to go. He has 10 or more moving companies in New York committed to pick up on the sidewalk. If you want to spring clean and can't get things to your retail locations, now you can. Just go to springcleanchallenge.com. All you have to do is lug your old junk to the front of your building and someone will do the work for you. Uh, it's a lazy man's dream. I see your Mazel Tov and I fold because my Mazel Tov is not as profound. It's not as do-goodery. Uh, I just read an amazing book that I want to tell the world about. And I, I think it. I think for many of you, it will open up a window into my soul um, that I don't <laughs> show a lot. This window closes. It's seldom opened. It has to be a balmy 62 degrees, no humidity for me to open this window into my soul. I read this book called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock by a rock writer whose work I didn't know, Stephen Hyden, H-Y-D-E-N. And it was the most enjoyable read I've had in many months. It was basically about like, what will those of us who love good old-timey classic rock and roll, generally like the 70s rock from like Sgt. Pepper through the last Eagles album. Allman Brothers? Yeah, like, you know, you know what I'm saying. What will we do now that our heroes are dying off? And- I realized that not everyone cares the way that I do. Not everyone will see this as the loss that I see it as, but it spoke to me in a very deep and beautiful way. I really did laugh and I really did cry at parts of this book. And if you're someone like, I, I just, I don't even know if you're someone who was as, as pained by the death of Walter Becker of Steely Dan a few years ago as I was, I, this is the book for you. And I just think Stephen Hyden, whom I don't know, whom I've never met, he lives in the Midwest. I, you know- I just want him to know. I want some Jew out there who has his contact info to send a little love kiss, a little internet kiss to him and say that I but say But not Mazel like Tov the kind of kiss the neo-Nazis give. Correct. Not that kiss. Don't Do lick not him. Lick Don't lick him. Stephen Hyden. Just send him an email. I love that. Um, speaking of like opening emotional doors and windows, I like have a shout out to my quarantine husband, Ben Cohen, uh, my roommate, uh, my co-quarantiner. He's been doing amazing reporting on Dr. Fauci. And he did a story about Dr. Fauci's high school basketball team. And then he did a story about, well, first it started actually with a story about Dr. Fauci's like daily run, his running habits. Um, and then it was about his high school basketball team. And before he became America's point guard, he was the Regis high school basketball team. And then he actually- Did he go to Regis? Yeah, he went to Regis. Which is the the free elite Catholic boys high school yep. in New York City that produces some of the best debate champions there are. It's, yeah, it's like one of those, like how everyone who won it, like everyone in music went to Erasmus. Yeah, like every ex exactly. Yeah. And every Jewish Nobel Prize winner went to Bronx Science. Every Catholic debater went to Regis. Sorry, that's just amazing. So then finally he got to talk to Fauci on the phone. And um, Kat and I were sent into the bedroom because we were apparently deemed disruptive. Uh, so we had to wait in the bedroom. But I heard him like cackling on the phone. And they basically talked about his mentor, who was this this Dr. Shelley Wolf. And it was just <laughs> a really, really cool story about um, Dr. Yeah, of course, Shelley his, Wolf. his Jewish mentor. But um, I don't know. It's just Bronx sort of Science fun. alumnus Shelley Wolf. But yeah, so like if anyone's interested in reading, get past that paywall and check it out. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call them to us at 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter. It's at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. You should be wearing and carrying unorthodox too. The nice thing is we have a lot of home-friendly sweat clothes. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt and find the latest in our shirts, mugs, onesies, and other snuggle wear. 
follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sara Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Larry Blast, the lay leader of B'nai Israel in Council Bluffs, Iowa. We come to you from Argo Studios, which is doing tech for Andrew Cuomo's press conferences. Shalom, friends. I just want to say that we've we've our system has sort of like become more sophisticated now. Josh has a whiteboard and he just <laughs> holds up signs like a hostage. <laughs> what, my, like favorite, a hostage. my favorite my favorite sign he me. held up so far said they both have Nazis. <laughs> Help me.